This evening, we're going to spend our time addressing the arguments of those who insist that the foundations of America are completely corrupt. And the reason why? Well, it's because according to them, this nation was built upon the blood of slaves. While it's true that the history of our nation is in fact stained with the blood of the Africans who became victims of the Atlantic slave trade, uh, it's also true that uh, the, the founding fathers of America were the leaders who were actually led by the Lord to create a form of government which allowed for the American abolitionist movement. And, and, and as we continue to make our way through this study tonight, we'll see that the uh, American abolitionist movement was largely led by Christians who were determined to abolish slavery here in America. But now before I get too far ahead of myself, I just want to back up so that we can consider just a a few facts about the history of slavery. Now, you see, those who insist that America is uniquely evil because of the slavery that took part here uh, in in our nation, these people are actually failing to paint an accurate picture of world history as it pertains to this subject of slavery, and this is a very uh, a common topic in, in those who are teaching like CRT, critical race theory, and these sorts of things. You know, they want to suggest that, you know, America is just uniquely evil. Uh, unlike anywhere else in the world, uh, America, is, and, and spe- specifically American capitalism, you know, because these people are always Marxists and socialists, you know, they, they, want, they want to say that America is just, you know, the most evil place in the world because of the transatlantic slave trade. You might not know this, but slavery has actually existed at some point in time in every corner of the world throughout the entirety of human history. Not only that, but I should also point out that slavery wasn't initially founded upon racial differences, as we've been taught to think here in America, that slavery is just about race. Uh, And it's not just about race. Instead, slavery was initially based upon disparities of power, which oftentimes affected people of the same race, because it would happen within the same area. Uh, As a matter of fact, up until the the time of the Atlantic slave trade, Asians were enslaving other Asians. Native Americans were enslaving other Native Americans. Africans were enslaving other Africans. White Europeans were also enslaving other white Europeans. Slavery was an issue all throughout the world, uh, and it was typically uh, the same race enslaving uh, people of the same color. And while it's true that white slaves from Europe were actually present in ancient Rome, uh, white slaves were also found throughout the Ottoman Empire. And what's even more interesting is that there are some scholars who actually trace the word slave to the word Slav. And just to be clear, uh, the word Slav was initially used of the Slavic Europeans who were actually hunted by Slav traders. Uh, this began about the 9th and 10th centuries, and it was at that point in time when the white Slavs filled the slave markets in Europe, Asia, as well as in Africa. That's right. From the, uh, from, from the 9th century forward, you, you saw uh, white people, white slaves being sold in Africa. Uh, Then from the 15th century until the 19th century, at least 15 million Europeans, uh, which included, you know, Russians and Mediterraneans and Caucasus whites and and, and people from all these areas were captured by Muslim Ottomans and and the Barbary pirates and the Crimean Tartars and the Turks. And and those who were captured, uh, they ended up being sold as sex slaves or they were turned into eunuchs uh, and the elderly uh, were actually killed for sport. 
simply put, you know, this horrific practice of slavery, uh, it's been an issue throughout the entirety of humanity and in every region of the world. Now listen, it's not my intention here to diminish the atrocities that occurred here in the United States of America. I'm not trying to suggest that, well, it happened everywhere else, so it's got to be okay here too, right? That's not my argument, not at all. I do take issue, though, with those who would have us to believe that, well, America is uniquely and irredeemably evil because of the part that our forefathers played in the transatlantic slave trade. And they would have us to believe now that, well, you know, because our forefathers took part in slavery, that, you know, the, the system of government here in America is systemically evil and racist and based in slavery. If that's true of our form of government, then that's true of every other form of government throughout every nation of the world. And yet they're not making this argument. To further explain my point, I want to take a moment to consider the larger context of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, You might not know this, but Muslim raiders actually began capturing and enslaving Africans as far back as the 8th century. And by the 17th century, millions of Africans had already been enslaved by Muslims all in the name of jihad. It was a conversion by the sword, so to speak, and if they didn't convert, then they were enslaved. And as seafaring Europeans then began to reach the coast of West Africa, you know, the Islamic slave trade at that point in time was already bustling. It's also important to note that the African tribesmen who had embraced Islam, uh, well, well, they were the ones who were actually capturing and selling their enemy tribesmen to the Europeans. So uh, the, the, the idea that Europeans were coming to, you know, Africa and, and you know, going through the jungles in search of, of, you know, tribesmen. That's just not the case. They would pull up on the shore. There's the slave trade. The slave trader is that African tribesman right there who captured another tribe that, uh, of people who weren't, uh, you know, embracing Islam. And, and then they were sold uh, to, to these uh, slave traders. With all this being the case, there should be no doubt in our minds then that the transatlantic slave trade, well, it's initially created by Muslim slave traders. I like the way that one African academic named John Alambilla Azuma, he sums it up in this way by declaring, and I quote him here, slavery was a very endemic part of Islamic interaction with Africa. And in West Africa, the jihads period of the 18th and 19th centuries involved massive slave raiding and slave trading. And many of of the slaves that were captured and sold and sent to the transatlantic slave trade were captured by Muslims. Most of those who were doing the slaving at the time were Muslim communities. So so Muslim communities there uh, in Africa were the ones that were mainly doing the slave trading uh, and raiding. From this, we can see then that the transatlantic slave trade wasn't uh, initiated by evil colonial Americans who went to Africa in search of slaves. No, instead, this was initiated by Muslim slave traders who were quick to enslave those who wouldn't convert to Islam. And it's sad to say that there were upwards of 14 million Africans who were enslaved and transported to Arabia uh, during uh, the time that was known as the trans-Saharan slave trade. So not only were these Muslims, you know, not only did they end up selling slaves and and sending them westward in the transatlantic slave trade, but they were transporting uh, African slaves uh, on the trans-Saharan slave trade as they sent them uh, to Arab or Arabia. 
Meanwhile, the British and the Portuguese soon saw this opportunity to cash in on those who had been enslaved. And according to, to one count, 70% of the African slaves who ended up in the Americas, they were transported by the British and by the Portuguese slave traders. And just to be clear, we aren't just talking about the United States of America is when I say the, the Americas. As a matter of fact, a Harvard professor named Henry Louis Gates, uh, he's helped us to realize that only 86% of the African slaves were able to survive the horrific conditions on those slave ships. And, and those who actually did survive, of those, 4% ended up here in the United States of America. Just 4%. What happened to the rest of them? Well, they were shipped to South America as well as to the Caribbean or the Caribbean, depending on where you're from. Brazil alone received 4.9 million African slaves, which is 4 million and 500,000 more than those who were brought to the United States. Think about that for a moment. There were approximately 450,000 that ended up here in America but 4 million, 4.9 million ended up in Brazil. And yet I have yet to hear one so-called CRT scholar insisting that Brazil was built upon the blood of slaves. And yet it would be more true of Brazil than it is of America. With all this in mind, we must agree that the horrific history of the human slave trade, it's a tragic testimony of human depravity. That's what it is. And regardless of whether a nation received half a million or five million, either way, it's, it's horrible. And it's sad to say that every nation of the world has been stained by the blood of slaves and slaves from every nationality. Sadly, though, you know, as we refocus our attention back to America, you know, it is sad that slavery was legal in 13 colonies on the day our founding fathers declared their independence from Great Britain back in 1776. At the same time, though, it would be incorrect for us to think that all of our founding fathers were slave owners or, or endorsing slavery. Not only that, but listen, those who insist that every white American was an evil slave owner, they're once again engaging in historic revisionism. But that's the way it's sold in our, in, in our colleges and in our public schools. That all white Americans were pro-slavery... And therefore, the stain of slavery is on the, on, uh, you know, on the hands of every Ameri a white American. But that's not the case at all. Case in point, you know, by the beginning of the 1860s, uh, the United States had already admitted 34 states into the Union. And yet, by that point in time, only 15 states were actually slave-owning states. It was 80 years earlier when the northern states began passing laws to gradually abolish slavery. Pennsylvania was the first state to begin the process in 1780, followed by Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and, and New Hampshire. New York and New Jersey followed in 1799 and 1804, respectively. By 1861, more than half of the states here in our nation had already abolished slavery. Incredible. And within the states where slavery was still legal, less than 5% of the population were actually slave owners. Just grasp that for a moment. Within all 15 states where slavery was still legal, less than 5% of the population were actually slave owners. If we narrow our focus down to the Democrat-run states that left the Union 
and establish the Confederacy, if we just focus on those states, what we discover is that 31% of the families in the Confederate states were slave owners. So all of a sudden, we find ourselves with a larger percent of the population owning slaves. But still, the vast majority, even in those states, the vast majority of white Americans really had nothing to do with slavery, except that it was just part of the economic system. At the same time, there are those who insist that America is still systemically racist, and the reason why is because the majority of the founding fathers were, in fact, slave owners. Just to give you the hard numbers here, 49 of the 64 founding fathers actually owned slaves. So not all of them, but most certainly the majority of them. But before we jump to the conclusion that these men must have been you know, horrible racists who, who you know, went out to the slave markets and, and bought slaves for themselves, it's important for us to remember that these men were born into a society in which slavery was seen as a social norm. As a matter of fact, for, for the bulk of human history, slavery has been treated as just a social norm and a way of life. And that's the society that these men were actually born into. And with that being the case, many of our founding fathers actually received their slaves as a family inheritance, meaning their parents owned the slaves and then passed them down. For example, it was at the age of 11 when George Washington's father died. And as a result, George Washington not only inherited the family farm, but also his parents' slaves. So he didn't go to the slave market and go buy slaves, no, no. He had slaves that were passed to him from his parents. And over the course of his life, George Washington began to believe that slavery must be abolished. As a matter of fact, it was 1786 when Washington wrote about slavery by insisting, and I quote him here, there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it but there is only one proper and effectual mode by which it can be accomplished, and that is by legislative authority. In other words, he, he was fighting for uh, the abolishing of slavery here in America, but wanted to do it through the proper channel so that it couldn't just be reversed, you know, like, uh, like so many cases can be. President George Washington came to realize that slavery needed to be abolished because it was wrong. He also described his own ownership of slaves in this way. And remember, the slaves that he had, he, he received by inheritance. But here's what he said about that. The only unavoidable subject of regret. That's what he called it. The only unavoidable subject of regret. In other words, this was something that was given to him by inheritance, but it was, a, it was a regretful on his part. And at the time of his death, he left a will and in his will, he freed the slaves that he had acquired from his father. In similar fashion, Thomas Jefferson also inherited his father's plantation, which included all of the slaves that his father owned. And yet, this is the same man who penned the Declaration of Independence, which includes those words, all men are created equal. It's for this reason that so many have accused him of hypocrisy for saying all men are created equal while also owning slaves. And yet it's important to note that Thomas Jefferson actually describes slavery as a political and moral evil. That's what he called it. A political and moral evil. 
This man who also inherited the slaves of his parents, he also expressed his deep desire to abolish the institution of slavery altogether. And the proof of this could be seen in the way that he worked uh, to create a country where all people can actually enjoy true equality. Uh, For example, you know, at the time of the American Revolution, Jefferson was actively involved in legislation that he hoped uh, would result in the abolition of slavery here in America. In 1778, he drafted a a Virginia law prohibiting the importation of enslaved Africans. In 1784, he proposed an ordinance to ban slavery in the Northwest Territories as well. And he clearly uh, was a founding father who worked hard to abolish slavery. Sadly, as the founding fathers of our nation were beginning to set the stage for the abolition of slavery. Uh, This tragic tree of slavery was taking root in the Confederate states of our nation where Democrat leaders were cashing in on their crops like cotton and tobacco. And while it's true that the economy of the Deep South was finally beginning to benefit from the transatlantic slave trade, uh, it's also true that the founding fathers of America had already created the system of government which actually set the stage for the American abolitionist movement. Now, just to be clear, you know, the American abolitionist movement was essentially a political campaign against slavery here in America. To put this into perspective, you know, it'll help you to know that this incredible movement, it it began around the, the late 1700s and continued until 1865 when our government finally abolished slavery following the end of the American Civil War. And as we consider the leaders of this movement, Well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there were many born-again believers who dedicated their lives to the full emancipation of all enslaved people here in the West. Just to give you a few examples, we find John Adams. John Adams, you should know, is the second president of the United States. And he once declared this, he says, I have throughout my whole life held that the practice of slavery is such an abhorrence that I have never owned a Negro or any other slave, though I have lived many years in times when the practice was not disgraceful, when the best men in the vicinity thought it not inconsistent with their character. In other words, he's saying, hey, though though this was socially acceptable within my lifetime, I never personally owned another person. How about David Barrow, the anti-slavery Baptist minister who planted an integrated church in 1795, which actually included an African-American as its pastor? Not only that, but he went on to become a leader of the Kentucky Abolition Society, and he, and he published an anti-slavery pamphlet in which he stated this, and I quote him, that innocent, unoffending persons and their posterity should suffer the most degrading kind of slavery to perpetual generations only because some of the fellow creatures through covetousness, imprudence, and ignorance had paid inconsiderable sums of money for their parents several generations past has no foundation in reason and justice. Wow, I wonder what he really thought. Yeah, this, this Baptist minister is saying there's no foundation in reason and justice to continue owning people simply because your parents bought their parents so many years ago. 
There was Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, who was not only an anti-slavery clergyman, but he was also an early member of the Republican Party, and he also supported the anti-slavery wing of the Republican Party and its presidential candidates, and he actually raised money to free slaves. He raised money to free slaves and helped the Kansas uh, Immigrant Aid Society, which sent settlers into Kansas in order to ensure that uh, that it would enter the Union as a free state. They would go in and, and just you know buy a little... Little, little square of land to be able to claim that they're citizens and then they would vote accordingly against slavery. This minister also opposed the Dred Scott Supreme Court case of 1857, which effectively uh, ended up being overturned by the 13th and 14th Amendments of our Constitution. And so again, we see a, a, another minister, a Christian clergyman, fighting against slavery here in America. There was also Benjamin Rush, who is one of our founding fathers. He also wrote an anti-slavery pamphlet published in 1773. Uh, this pamphlet was titled, An Address to the Inhabitants of the British Settlements in America Upon Slavekeeping. And in this pamphlet, this man of faith declares this, and I quote, Slavery is so foreign to the human mind that the moral faculties, as well as those of the understanding, are debased and rendered torpid by it. All of the vices which are charged upon the Negroes in the southern colonies and West Indies are the genuine offspring of slavery and serve as an argument to prove they, speaking of the African Americans, were not intended by providence for it. Say what? He's saying, yeah, it's not God's providential plan for them to be enslaved in this way. And he was right. Then there was Reverend Leroy Sunderland, who founded the American Anti-Slavery Society. Sunderland was also co-founder of an anti-slavery Wesleyan Connection of America, and he also founded the first anti-slavery society within the Methodist Church. And it was August 1836 when a $50,000 bounty, now imagine $50,000 back then in 1836, a lot of money, $50,000 bounty was offered by the citizens of Mount Meigs, Alabama, for the capture of this minister. In response, Reverend Sunderland declared this, he says, every American citizen who retains a fellow being in bondage as a piece of property and takes the price of his labor without his consent, is guilty of a crime which cannot be reconciled with the spirit of the Christian religion. He's saying you cannot be a Christian who is abiding in the word of God and a slave owner. You can't do it. You cannot reconcile these two things. Another founding father, his name is John Jay. He was not only the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, but he also served as the president of the Continental Congress, and he was the governor of the state of New York for a season. And, and he actually attempted to end slavery in 1777 and, and again in 1785. 
It was in 1799 when he signed into law the act for the gradual abolition of slavery. And this gets into some level of debate amongst the abolitionists who, you know, some were saying immediately right now it has to fully be ended. Others were like, well, let's gradually get into this. We can't just, you know, unring this bell just immediately. And so there were, there were infighting about all of this. But uh, he, he signed this law, the act for the gradual abolition of, of slavery, uh, which eventually freed all the slaves in New York. And in this way, we can see John Jay truly being a, 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 a good judge, a justice of the first Supreme Court by fighting for the justice of the slaves there in New York. Incredible man. Then there was John Brown, the radical militant abolitionist leader. And, you know, John Brown wrote the Provisional Constitution and Ordinances for the People of the United States. Uh, Brown not only condemned slavery, but he actually led a raid against the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, on October 16th, 1859. I'm guessing some of us have learned the John, Brown, John Brown's body song. I'll, I'll spare your ears by not singing it tonight. But it's sad that, you know, Brown was tried for treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia. And after he was found guilty of all charges, he became the first person executed for treason here in the United States. Yeah, he was executed for treason because he was fighting for the freedom of those who had been enslaved. As rumor has it, he was asked if he wanted a minister from this area to walk him up to the gallows before he was hanged. And he said, no, you won't be able to find a minister in this region that doesn't own a slave, so no. Brown asked his jailer to create his epitaph with uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, which reads this. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. What a man. What a man of God to fight this fight to the point of being hanged from the gallows. And listen, this is just a scratch on the surface of all the Christian abolitionists who dedicated their lives to the abolition of slavery here in America. I could just go on and on for the next you know, three hours just telling you the stories of men and women, both white and black, who fought for the freedom of the slaves here in America. I like the way that Randy Hardiman sums it all up by declaring this, and I quote him. The abolition, uh, abolition, abolitionist movement itself was essentially a movement to reinstate Christian morality in the South. If it were not for Christianity and with that Christian morality, there would have been no abolitionist movement and slavery would not have ended when it did. If it weren't for Christianity and Christian morality, which is based in biblical truth, had it not been for these things, then there would have been no American abolitionist movement because the atheists didn't start it. The agnostics weren't giving their lives to free the slaves. No, it was the Christians who led the American abolitionist movement. And had they not, well, it's possible that slavery would have continued for many, many, many more years. How long, we wouldn't even be able to say. I like the way that Emmett Scott weighed in on this. He did this by declaring, 
And I quote, the great humanitarian impulse to end slavery from the late 18th century onwards came entirely, he says entirely, from the Christian West. And by the mid-19th century, it was stamped out completely in most Christian lands. In other words, listen, wherever Christianity flourished, slavery ended up being stamped out. One reason why is because born-again believers who truly want to abide by the truth of the Bible will recognize that God has indeed created all races to be equal. I'll prove my point. This is the point that Paul is actually making in Acts chapter 17. If you would look with me here at Acts chapter 17, it's here where Paul preaching to the, uh, the, 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 the philosophers there in Athens, Greece, he's He's wanting to spread this, this new truth that they've never heard before. And, and he's preaching the word of God to them by helping them to understand that all of the gods that they're worshiping, all of the idols that they were bowing down to were false gods. And, and he chose one idol, which was to the unknown God. And he says, this is the God I'm going to tell you about, the one you don't know. And it's here in Acts 17, verse 24. Where Paul says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood. I'm not good with math, but I think I can figure this one out. One blood equals... One blood. All right. He didn't say anything about the crypts, but he is talking about the bloods here. But he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hopes that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. According to Paul, our creator has made every race on the face of the earth from one blood. It was at the Tower of Babel when he started separating people out by languages, and that's where you see the, uh, you know, the, the nations being created. But, but listen, we can all, all, every single one of us here tonight, we can all trace our bloodline back to Adam and Eve. We, we all come from Adam, Adam and Eve. And while I realize that there were many Christians in colonial America who, who once believed that, you know, the African race was cursed with the mark of Cain, and that was their justification for owning these people because, you know, they're clearly cursed of God, and that's why they have the black skin and these sorts of things. Listen, this is nothing more than racist hatred hidden behind a biblical proof text. Nothing in the Bible would lead us to think that the curse of, of Cain was, was some sort of, you know, coloration of the skin. What, God cursed them with more melatonin? Really? That, that's what you're going to tell me? And that justifies owning people? Come on. It was racist hatred. hidden behind a, a biblical proof text. And I, and I think I, I said melatonin, which is really something that puts you to sleep, but <laughs> I'll get it right. <laughs> God cursed him with, you know, 
Melatonin. All right. That's why they're always sleeping. <laughs> you guys got me. You understand what I'm saying here? This is an argument from racist, racist hatred. Not, not because the Bible really presents that as, as an argument. And listen, the God of the Bible not only created all the nations of men from one blood, but listen, we can be certain that the Lord loves all the nations of the world. To prove my point, I want to consider what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3. It's there where he declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus says God loves the world. Not some of the world, not most of the world. God so loves the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever, whoever, listen, if it's true that God so loves the world, then doesn't it also stand to reason that he must also love all the nations of the world, whosoever, And if it's true that he loves all the nations of the world, then it only stands to reason that Jesus was sent to save people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. With this in mind, I want to consider the great commission that Christ Jesus presented in Matthew chapter 28. If you would, uh, look with me here at Matthew 28. It's verse 18, where the Lord Jesus declares, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of most of the nations. Oh, wait. That's not what it says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Here, here in this discipleship directive that we call the Great Commission of Christ Jesus. You know, we find Christ instructing Christians to go make disciples of all the nations, not just some of them. And with this as the goal, the Christian who wants to accomplish the Great Commission should also then repent of any racist hatred that might be hidden in our hearts. And listen, I'll be the first to, to confess that America it still has racists. And listen, you know, racism can be found in the heart of of any person. And I get it, you know, there are those who want to insist that only white people can be racist. Not true. Because racism is just based on the idea that you're better than someone else because of your race is better than their race. And that can be in the heart of any person. And if any of us here tonight have racist hatred in our hearts, then we need to repent. And one reason why is because, please hear me when I say this, racists won't enjoy heaven at all. Racists will not enjoy heaven at all. I'll prove my point. I want to consider the vision that John presents in Revelation chapter 5. You can turn with me there if you'd like. 
here he's you know, looking at this glimpse of heaven. He's seeing the throne of the Lamb, and he's watching this worship service playing out. Uh, and, and, and as he describes this new song that they're singing, he also tells us about who uh, the, the people who are there before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's here in Revelation chapter 5. I want you to look with me here at verse 9. John tells us that they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Here in these verses we find John describing this worship service that's taking place there in heaven and, and we must not fail to notice that he's, he's seeing the people there in heaven worshiping there at the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ and he notices every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now that's incredible to consider. You know, because if, if you, you know, grew up learning the Bible from cartoons, then you would think that we'd be just, just become these white wisps of smoke and, you know, we just kind of float around on clouds with harps and whatnot. But here, John is saying that he's recognizing people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. To me, this seems to suggest that while we will receive a brand new everlasting body as we enter into the presence of heaven, that there's going to be some level of parallel from the race we were here on earth to who we're going to be in heaven. Now, I truly believe that we're all going to be fat in heaven and love 68 degree air conditioning because I'm pretty sure that's biblical. The psalmist says, he who puts his faith in the Lord shall be made fat. And so we can tell who truly trusts in the Lord here tonight. But there's some sort of recognition on John's part as he sees the people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation worshiping Jesus there in heaven. I can guarantee you that we're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder as we sing the praises of our Savior. And we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with people of every, uh, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And listen, if you're a racist, you're going to hate this. Therefore, we would do well to repent of any racism that we have in our hearts tonight. With that, I encourage all the saints of God to agree with me in saying that slavery is stupid. I don't think that there's many things that we should say are stupid, but this is certainly one of them. Slavery is stupid. And it's not spiritual at all. The slavery of human bondage is completely stupid because it's based on the belief that one race of people is better than another. And it's just not true. We all come from the same parents, so to speak. We've all come from Adam and Eve. So why would the color of my skin make me better or worse than anyone else? I know I rock a farmer's tan pretty well, but that doesn't make me any better. Maybe a little, but not much. 
Seriously, though, trust me when I tell you that slavery is stupid because slavery is based on racism, and racism is stupid. And it's completely unbiblical. It's rooted in the sin of pride. It's pride that would lead us to think that, well, my race is better than some other race. That's foolish pride, and it's not from the Lord. It's for this reason that I encourage every Christian in closing that we need to walk in the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is the humility that was demonstrated by the Christian abolitionists who dedicated their lives to the spreading of the gospel message and, and, and to, to share the love of the Lord with the, the people of every tribe and tongue and nation because they knew that slavery is stupid. And in this we can rejoice in knowing that while America is truly stained, with the blood of the slaves. We had founding fathers who were truly led by the Lord to establish a system of government that set the stage for the abolition of slavery. And in that, we can rejoice in our Savior. Let's pray.